The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, if you turn to Jonah chapter 4, book of Jonah chapter 4. Uh, if you're new to the Bible or just have trouble uh, finding it, you can take the chair Bible right from the chair in front of you, and it's on page 822, page 822. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Paul was asking me uh, if I knew what my text was going to be for this Sunday. He was picking out songs to kind of go with the, with the preaching text, and I told him I'd, I'd narrowed it down to three options, including Jonah 4, uh, Galatians 5, and a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 as well, but I wasn't sure, so I still needed some time to kind of uh, think it through. But then I received a sign. <laughs> Revelation. On June 11th. Maybe you had the same sign. A Massachusetts lobster diver <laughs> named Michael Packard was working on an early Friday morning off of Cape Cod. He was diving for lobster. He was about 10 feet off the bottom of the ocean. Anybody see this in the news? Dude got swallowed by a whale, a humpback whale, swallowed him. One newspaper article said it had happened once before, 150 years ago, when another Cape Cod, man, I don't know what's going on off Cape Cod, but you're going to be careful, the whales over there are hungry. A guy was swallowed by a sperm whale, but we know it's happened at least once before that, don't we? <laughs> Whether it was indeed a whale or a great fish, the ancient writers, of course, uh, didn't really distinguish, right? Even though whales are mammals, the, the biblical writers tend to categorize anything that swims in the sea as, as a fish. Uh, the reluctant prophet Jonah underwent this trying ordeal. Um, some of you, if you grew up in church or going to Sunday school, you probably know, or, or maybe you watch VeggieTales, I don't know, you saw some... Some version of the Jonah story. One thing that got, that got missed, because I mean, I grew up hearing the story. Um, I never really picked up that Jonah's kind of a dirtbag. I don't know if you've picked that up. Like, he's not a good guy. And he's not much of a swimmer. We know that. He was a runner. I don't know if you've picked up that he's a runner. Jonah is running from all kinds of things. What is Jonah running from? Well, God sent him on a mission and Jonah was disobedient. He ran the other direction. But when we dig down, I think, into Jonah's temperament and into kind of the rationale in his thinking, his heart, as it were, I think we realize that Jonah's not just running from the mission. He's actually running from the implications of the mission, what the mission actually means. Jonah, uh, in fact, I think, and I hope to prove in, in, in this morning's message, is trying to run from the biggest, most astounding reality that any human being could ever confront, which is the love of God. That's what Jonah is running from, the reality of the love of God. Let's begin reading Jonah chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew over Jonah to to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in a night. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh? which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would bless our hearing of it this morning, plant it deep in our hearts. Give us the courage to confront your love and to receive it. We know that we need the gift of faith to do this. We ask for that even this morning. Father, help us to see the glory of your Son above all. Without that, we cannot be changed. And it's in his precious name that we pray these things, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't want to assume that you're familiar with the story of Jonah. Likely most of you, if not all of you, are. But just as a recap to kind of situate our our context, our chapter this morning in the great storyline, Jonah chapter 1, God commissions Jonah to go preach to the city of Nineveh, go preach uh, repentance. They're a wicked city, um, and if they do not repent and worship the one true God, um, the Lord says he will send a great disaster on them. He will send great destruction on them. But Jonah refuses to go. He hates Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites. He doesn't want anything to do with this mission. And so he actually runs the other way. And he gets on a ship that is going to a place called Tarshish. The Lord interrupts him, though, doesn't he? He sends a great storm. And, and the people on the ship begin to fear that they're going to die in this storm. And they're praying to their gods and they're casting lots to figure out what they're going to do. And Jonah uh, essentially says, This is my God. He has done this. And the way that you can save yourselves is by throwing me overboard, which, of course, they do. And once he's in the ocean, then he is swallowed by this great fish. In chapter 2, Jonah is now inside the fish, and he's having a very intense devotional time with the Lord. He's spending three days. His quiet time is probably not so quiet, but we see this heart-to-heart that he is having with God in the belly of this fish. And at the end of this heart-to-heart, this deep prayer time, the fish vomits him up onto the beach. In chapter three, Jonah finally obeys and he goes to Nineveh and he preaches repentance. And lo and behold, the city undergoes an amazing move of God. There is widespread repentance and worship of Yahweh. So then we come to chapter four and it opens, of course, with Jonah just overjoyed about the fruit of his ministry. So you would think, He went and preached his repentance, people repent. You'd think that's what a preacher should be thankful for. No, it opens with him angry. Jonah, verse 1, was greatly displeased and became furious. This is why I say he's a dirtbag, right? Given everything, even after everything this guy has been through, you would think he'd be a little bit softer by now. Getting thrown out of a ship into a stormy sea, spending three days in the stomach of a fish having a passionate heart-to-heart with God, 
all of that might do something to change a man, but we still find Jonah running away from the idea of God's mercy, even to the very end. There's not a happy ending for Jonah at the end of this book. He's a hard-headed and hard-hearted man. And he's kind of throwing a temper tantrum. Jonah is responding, however, and rejecting the essential message that he's been sent to proclaim. The essential message of the whole Bible, actually. The message that God actually, truly loves sinners. So this is the first thing we see about God's love, the thing Jonah is running from in this chapter. God's love is for our worst enemies. God's love is for our worst enemies. Jonah, in a way, is acting as if God is unjust or, or, or maybe just unreasonable. He has this sense of indignation, in fact, about the reality of God's grace. In a way, Jonah is kind of thinking of himself as holier than God. He, he's, he's furious about what he expected God would do all along, which is forgive people who don't deserve it. Verse 2, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I just knew it. I knew you'd be slow to anger. I knew that you would be abounding in faithful love. I knew that you would relent from sending that disaster. And now, Lord, oh, it's so pitiful. Just kill me. Take my life from me, verse 3, for it's better for me to die than to live. He is so unnerved by God's grace, by God's compassion, by his love, that he'd rather die than see it given to those that he perceives as his enemies. Don't give grace to those people. If you're going to give grace to those people, just kill me now. They don't deserve it. See, Jonah's conception of holiness is, is that there should be no mercy for enemies. His conception of holiness, which on the surface seems to be quite high, excludes holy love. He insists that it is unjust for those des, uh, uh, undeserving of forgiveness to actually get forgiveness. Now, we're going to come back to that idea uh, a little later, but for now, we just need to contemplate this, however. Let me just need to apply it to ourselves, because it's very easy to read this and go, what a dirtbag, right? This jerk. But if we're honest, like Jonah, you and I struggle with God's grace given to people we don't like either. People we hate, maybe, if we can use that word. People who may, in fact, have done something very wrong, maybe even something very wrong to us. But we have to be careful about that kind of thinking. Because the truth is, none of us deserves forgiveness. There's not deserving people and undeserving people. There's undeserving people and God. You likely know the story of Corey Timboom, one of two daughters of Dutch parents who hid Jews and helped them escape in Holland during Nazi Germany's occupation of that country in World War II. They were eventually sent to a concentration camp. And Corey's sister, Betsy, died in one of those camps. And later, Corey Ten Boom recounted this challenging encounter at a speaking engagement. She says, it was a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. 
Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time, she said, since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me the the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, she said, and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there, she said, with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will, and and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We can and, and should recoil at Jonah's anger, at, at God's mercy here. But we should also be honest enough to acknowledge that we often feel like Jonah, don't we? We don't look out at God's enemies or, or our own, people we regard as our enemies, and think loving thoughts, do we? Salvation thoughts. We very often think angry thoughts, judgmental thoughts. Thinking about Corey Ten Boom facing down a guard of the Nazi concentration camp where so many were tortured and killed, including her sister. We resonate with how she felt at the prospect of announcing forgiveness to him. It's one thing to just announce there's forgiveness of sins. It's another thing to look in the eyes of someone who has hurt you and say, I forgive you. Corey Ten Boom, as difficult as it was, made a conscious commitment to drop the record of wrong, which is what forgiveness 
is, it's canceling the debt that someone owes us. When we are hurt in some way or wronged by another, our natural inclination is towards justice. And that's a good thing. That's, that's actually a good thing. That sense is put inside of us by God himself. The human inclination towards justice is, is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But our justice is frequently imperfect. It's complicated by our fallen nature. So very often, we don't just want to see rights made wrong. We want to see wrongdoers destroyed, dehumanized. We can be bloodthirsty. This is why even in like little spats and arguments, not necessarily like even big things, big hurts, but just the ordinary relational fracas, we get so worked up Beyond simply making our case, we try to utterly demoralize and sometimes emotionally overwhelm our opponents. The goal isn't reconciliation or even agreement, it's conquest. You must feel crushed for me to win. And then here comes God's love as this great interrupter, and it pacifies our bloodthirst, and it soothes our nerves. And it can rewire our thinking about the other person. So that in love, we don't just want to win the argument. We want to win the person. So we bring the reality of love to our consideration of past and present wrongs. And we let God's love reframe our consideration of these wrongs. It doesn't tell us that wrongs are rights. But it does give us the perspective of God's storyline. A big picture vantage point about his glory and about his name being known. Which then puts our own desire for vengeance in a very stunning perspective. Humbled by the portrait of God's love that we see in the Bible, for instance, we can find the supernatural strength to confront even great evils with a greater mercy. Well, you may ask, how how do I get there? Where do you find the supernatural strength to confront great evil with greater mercy? How do we get to the heart of God's forgiveness of our enemies? Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Those aren't suggestions. But how do you do it? I think it begins by trying to see people as God sees them. Not simply as we experience them. Seeing not just the hurts that people cause, but the soul that they have. For instance, this whole thing uh, with the plant and the worm, verses 6 through 8, and the scorching sun. Jonah is mad because God gave him a plant for shade and then took it away. He's angry enough to die because he's hot. Hello, this last week in Kansas City. Yes. He's upset about his circumstances. But do you know what he's not upset about? The souls in Nineveh who are dying and going to hell. He doesn't seem bothered by that in the least. In fact, he's terribly inconvenienced that the Lord would even send him to go speak to those people. It doesn't seem to bother him at all. This is the, the, the anti-Christian posture, the anti-Christ posture. What is the Christ-like perspective? Mark chapter 6, verse 34 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd... Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he felt compassion for them. His heart broke for them. And that word compassion there, um, it's, it's deeper. The connotation um, 
It isn't just like he felt sorry for them. It's, it's like a brokenness in the guts. It's a, it's a visceral reaction that he had for them. Looking at them, he loved them. Despite their sin, despite how awful they were, despite the fact that they had violated his divine holiness and would continue to violate his divine holiness, he felt compassion for them. What would it take for you and me to begin to see people that we don't like, maybe even people we hate, maybe even people that we consider our enemies, the way that God sees them? See, God's love is a lot bigger than we think it is, much bigger than we often wish it was. But it's such good news. And there's more good news to be seen here too because God's love doesn't just run into our spiritual lives, into the religious aspect of ourselves. His love runs into every aspect of ourselves. It's meant to cover and transform everything about us as only his sovereign love can. God's love is for our worst enemies. But we also see in this chapter, secondly, that God's love is for our whole lives. God's love is for our whole lives. Do you ever wonder about whether God cares about the stuff that you care about? If, if you're a, a, an overly kind of um, scrutinizing thinker, you may think about that. I remember hearing um, Joel Osteen once say that as he was, this isn't a uh, recommendation of Joel Osteen, by the way. Um, <laughs> if you wonder where I was going with that, they're like, wait, he's quoted Corey Tempem, Joel Osteen. Okay. Uh, that uh, he prays for a parking space every time he pulls into a parking lot, you know, a shopping mall. I remember I first heard that, I thought, such a heretic, what, like, what a jerk. I pray for parking spaces all the time now. And it's, and it's not like I'm a disciple of Osteen. I just thought, number one, he's not too busy. And number two, I don't want to like, obey the impulse to close communication line with God. And number three, the Bible says to cast all of your cares upon him. And so sometimes I want a nice parking space, and so I ask the Lord... For it. Now, now, obviously, there are some things that we care about that are superficial or inconsequential. As sinful people, we often get obsessed with or fixated on or even addicted to things that are not good for us. Or we treat even good things that God gives us, um, we treat them as, as idols, as, as objects of worship, and we worship them as ends unto themselves rather than as reasons to praise the giver of them. But there are lots of other things in our lives that God has wired us, created in, in, in his image to enjoy and to study and to wonder about and to investigate and to revel in and to look into and to work at. And even, I think, properly understood, to love. He's given us things to love. And because he made us not as angels or as some kind of spiritual robots, but as fully feeling human beings with different personalities and different gifts and different circumstances in life. He cares about our whole selves. Where do I see this in Jonah chapter four? Look at the very end, verse 11. So may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals. The an Who cares about the animals? Why would he even mention that? <laughs> he cares about the animals. Now, biblically, um, whenever it's, sometimes there's mentions of the animal, you know, like livestock, it's a sign of prosperity and that's a sign of blessing. So the Lord is kind of you know, conferring a blessing when he is giving you lots of cattle and all those sorts of things. But I think there's also, I, th I think that's in play here, but I think there's something else 
at play here as well. Um, earlier this year, we had to say goodbye to our good little boy, um, Indy. He was a Cairn Terrier Schnauzer mix. Not sure quite how old he was. He was a rescue. Um, and then we received him from a family member. But he had been with us for uh, about 10 years or so. Um, last year, he, he went blind. And he had some other, some other issues as well. And he just was getting worse and worse. And so we, we had to make the difficult decision to um, put him down. So in the morning, we made the appointment, and uh, Becky and I, you know, took him in to the vet there, and um, I did a pretty good job. I kept kind of a, I was kind of inside, I was a mess, but I was, you know, being strong. I had a stiff upper lip for Indy. I I wanted to be good for him, and, um, you know, and as far as those things go, it was nice. We got to hold him while they, you know, uh, um, you know, underwent the when he underwent the procedure and, and um, yeah, managed to kind of hold it together. And then, of course, we you know, laid him down when it was done and uh, began to walk out. And we had taken a little baggie of treats with us. And, of course, I had that in my hands as we were walking out. And I don't know where my mind was, but I was just thinking, you know, I don't need this anymore. And there was a, you know, a, a trash can outside. Um, and um, it was as soon as I threw the treats away, it was like something clicked and it dawned on me and I had to just jog to the car and as soon as I got out of the car and shut the door my wife got in the car and then it was just poosh, the waterworks had just started to blubber and I started thinking about this later like am I am I too sad you know like it's, a, it's just a dog like I have friends who are like it's just animals you know there's other animals it, it's getting so attached you know? and like those people I don't know if they're saved those people <laughs> like it's not like he was a cat alright I mean no, I know some of y'all love cats, but, and that's fine. I'm not, it's, uh, they're not, not for me, but if you like cats. But dogs are great, aren't they? I mean, we have, uh, uh, my wife has this bearded dragon. Have you seen these things? Some of you know this ordeal. This thing got out of its cage, this bearded dragon. She, she cuddles with this bearded dragon. She plays with the bearded dragon. It has zero personality. There's nothing, it's never interested in me or my life. You know, I don't know, I'm not... And it got out of the cage. It was, it was lost in the house for almost a month. I hardly thought about it. I, it was like, <laughs> I, he's, you know, he's off doing his thing. Didn't care. But the dog, you, you go to the mailbox and come back. The dog thinks you've been gone for hours. You know, and it's like, oh, tell me all about your journey. You know, he's so, <laughs> so excited. Dogs are amazing. So uh, they're like little living unconditional, uh, uh, you know, pictures of unconditional love and acceptance. So what I'm trying to do is, I, you know, take my sadness, because, you know, these memories keep coming up on, uh, on Facebook. On this day, I see, you know, Indy doing this and Indy doing that. And I take my sadness about missing my little buddy, and, and I turn it into a thankfulness. Thank you, God, that my family got to have this wonderful gift. Now, I don't think God, I, I know, in fact, I know God doesn't love animals as much or in the same way that he loves people. He hasn't made animals in, in, in his image. He's made humans in his image. We are the crown of his creation, but he gave us so many good gifts, including our interests and our hobbies, our gifts and our skills, our creativity, our tastes, and yes, even the rest of creation to be enjoyed. 
It's Peter who says, cast all of your cares onto God because he cares for you. All of your cares. He doesn't say, only cast the important ones. Only cast the ones that other people think are significant. He says, cast everything onto him. He can bear it. He cares for all of you. And so this reference to all these people and, the, and their city and their animals, I think, is a glimpse into the full scope of what God plans to redeem through Jesus. His plan in the end, remember, is not just to suck us up into some disembodied heaven, but to restore all creation for us to enjoy in an eternal and eternally unfallen state. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, all creation is groaning for redemption. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, says the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. His plan is for all creation. And so elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that God's plan is not just to throw away all of this beautiful and amazing stuff, but to create a new heavens and a new earth. Will my dog be in the new earth? Will Indy be in the new earth? I, I don't know. Do all dogs go to heaven? I, probably not. But I think dogs will be there because he's redeeming creation and coffee <laughs> and chocolate and all kinds of other things that he's given us to love. Because remember in Revelation, Jesus does not say, I'm making all new things. He says, I'm making all things new. So God's love runs all the way into eternity, future, into the new creation. God's love is infinite and expansive and all-encompassing. God's love runs through our whole eternal lives. And that God loves our whole lives is a remarkable truth, isn't it? Because who are we? Who are we? I think of these lines from Psalm 8. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place... What is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. If we're honest with ourselves, we ought to stagger that God cares about any aspect of our lives, much more our whole lives, because there is nothing in us that deserves his love. We are worse than we think we are, but God knows exactly how sinful we are, and he loves us, which leads to our third and final point. God's love is for our sinful selves. God's love is for our sinful selves. This is where people get a little hung up because they think God's love is for the cleaned up version of us. Jesus didn't come to die for cleaned up people. There is no such thing prior to his sanctifying presence. He came to die for sinners. So God keeps asking Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He asks him that in verse 4. He asks him that in verse, in verse 9. Jonah is angry about God's love even extending to our worst enemies. He feels like we often feel when people that we don't love turn out to be loved by God. <laughs> and God asks him, should you really be angry about that? I mean, just think about it. Think about the implications of this. Why is God asking him this? God is asking him this because he wants Jonah to face a very hard reality. He, Jonah, doesn't deserve God's love. Remember, there's not undeserving people and deserving people. There's undeserving people and God. We are all undeserving. And when we begrudge God's grace given to others, we're somehow imagining that we deserve it ourselves. 
Well, of course God would love me. I go to church every Sunday. But that guy mowing his yard at 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, there's not another time he could do that. He ought to be in the house of the Lord. So much more spiritual than that guy. I think this is part of what God is getting at in the exchange in verses 9 and 10. Take another look there. Verse 9, then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over, and you did not grow. You didn't do anything to get that plant. It was freely given to you. And you're acting like you somehow deserved it, like you earned it somehow. Jonah is acting so self-righteously. He's more concerned about his own comfort, which he thinks he himself deserves, than he is the idea of lost people going to hell, which he thinks he himself doesn't. Imagine just for a second, thought experiment. Imagine if God treated you the way that you wish that he would treat others. How would that go for you? Or, let's press it even more personally, imagine if God treated you the way that you treat others. I would, I don't speak for you, I would be in real trouble if God treated me the way I treat other people. And now we come back to that early question that I said that we'd come back to. Is it unjust for God to love the undeserving? I preached on this a few months ago here. But just to reiterate, the answer is no. First, because God cannot be unjust. Everything God does is just because he is a just God. And God is essentially holy, but he is also in and of himself love. First John chapter 4 tells us that, specifically in verse 8. But it's also not unjust for God to forgive sinners because God has a plan for the punishment of their sin. And Jonah becomes himself a living picture of this by spending those three days in that fish. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Jesus is the anti-Jonah. And Jesus becomes the one who doesn't run away. He, le he willingly leaps into the stormy sea of condemnation in order to calm God's wrath against us. And instead of running away from God's plan for the forgiveness of those who don't deserve it, not those people, Jesus runs towards them in love. The only sinless man to ever live runs towards those of us who need forgiveness, ready to love, ready to serve, ready to die. It's not unjust for God to forgive sinners because he is punishing their sin only by putting it on his only son, Jesus Christ. And those are your only two options, by the way. Because God is just, your sin will be punished. Either you take the punishment for your sin which is everlasting torment in the fires of hell, or the Son takes them for you. He takes them at the cross. Choose the cross. The place where mercy and justice intersect, the cross, 
the ultimate proof that God truly, deeply, greatly loves sinners. If you ever wonder, could God love someone like me? Maybe you're your own worst enemy. Could God love me? Look at the cross. It's proof. Historical, definitive proof. God actually loves sinners. If only Jonah could grasp these depths of God's love. Maybe he does later. We don't see him doing it here. We can hold out hope for him in this. Despite his failure to behold it well, he finds that it is holding him, grasping him. Even if he's kicking and screaming, the love of God has overtaken him. He's discovering that God's love is unoutrunnable. You can't outsin it. If he wants you, he will have you. He is God. And his loving kindness, the Bible says, endures forever. Charles Spurgeon says, after 10,000 sins, he loves you as infinitely as ever. Amen. He really is, verse 2, a gracious and compassionate God. He really is slow to anger. He really is abounding in faithful love. He really is one who relents from sending disaster. So to run away from him is in fact to run into the disaster. If you keep ignoring him, if you just keep going your own way, you are only headed to your own destruction. Instead, run to him. I know it's counterintuitive. The one who owes you wrath, running to him is the only safety. And if you will, you'll find not a wrathful, angry, condemning God, but a loving, merciful, smiling father. His love might be coming for you this very second. Don't run away. Just surrender. The Bible says if you repent of your sin, confess it, and believe in your heart that Christ has risen from the, the dead, you will be saved. Look to Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave. Get under the shade of his love, which no worm or storm or sun or even death can wither. And he'll cover you with his love forever. This book of the Bible is proof of that. It's proof that believe it or not, believe it or not, God loves sinners. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we confess that we, we are sinners. And we confess that very often we are not the worst sinners we know, or at least that we think that we know. Father, you know our transgressions way more than we do. And yet we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. That your calling is irrevocable. That your faithful love endures forever. And so I pray even this morning that there may be some who have passed from death to life and darkness to light from hearing this good news. And for all the saints gathered, Father, I ask that you would strengthen them in their faith. Help us to behold the glory of your son, even now that we might be transformed by it. It's in your son's precious name we pray these things. A name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.